listening to Latin Experts, a podcast of Latino studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Latin Experts features the voices of faculty, staff, and students, as well as friends and alumni of the Department of Mexican American and Latina Latino Studies, the Latino Research Institute, and the Center for Mexican American Studies. Join us for this episode of Latin Experts. Episode 3. How does anti-Black racism keep police violence from being seen as a Latinx issue? Our guests today include first Aaron G. Fountaine Jr., a PhD candidate at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. He has done freelance writing for Al Jazeera America, Latino Rebels, Black Perspectives, The Hill, Medium, and others. Our second guest today is Marisol Lebron, an assistant professor in the Department of Mexican-American and Latina Latino Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She is the author of Policing Life and Death, Race, Violence, and Resistance in Puerto Rico, and co-author, along with Yadimar Bonilla, of Aftershocks of Disaster, Puerto Rico Before and After the Storm. Let's listen. Aaron, it's so great to have an opportunity to be in conversation with you. I've been following your work for a really, really long time, and, and I'm really excited to hear your thoughts about this current moment that, that we're in. Following the police murder of George Floyd, we've seen uprisings against police violence all across the country and even around the world. This has led to some uneasy conversations about how Latinx people fit into these protests and the movement for Black Lives' call to end police violence more broadly. Police violence in the U.S. is often painted as an issue that doesn't affect Latinx people in the same ways that it affects Black folks. We don't really see Latino politicians, media, or even activists necessarily centralizing the question of police repression and brutality in the same way that we've seen immigration, for instance, being squarely positioned as a Latinx issue. So this is something that concerns me um, as a scholar of policing and as a, a Latinx studies scholar for a couple of reasons. First, I think it ignores Blackness within the Latinx community and the ways in which Black Latinx people are disproportionately targeted by police as well as vigilante violence in this country. Not to mention the informal policing of Black Latinx folks that takes place within Latinx spaces and also makes them more vulnerable to surveillance and state violence. Second, I think it ignores the long history of criminalization and police repression that Latinx people have encountered in the U.S., as well as that that they may have been fleeing in their home countries. Latinx history has always been intertwined with the history of policing in the United States. We can think of the incredible work of historian Kelly Lytle Hernandez in her books Migra and City of Inmates, which I highly recommend, um, where she shows how policing is not only central to the creation of the border and the U.S. as a settler nation, but also necessary in order to insert Latinx people into a racial hierarchy. Similarly, Monica Munoz-Martinez and Ken Gonzalez-Day have shown how Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were criminalized and lynched in Texas and other parts of the Southwest in order to take their lands and teach them about their place within American society. During the 1960s, we saw groups like the Young Lords take on questions of police repression and brutality. And today we see the ways in which young black and brown folks are swept up in stop and frisk policing all around the nation. Despite centuries of evidence to the contrary, policing isn't understood as a Latinx issue. And this, I think, tells us a lot about how Latinx people are popularly constructed 
and as a result, how they understand themselves in relation to Blackness. So this is what I wanted to dig into with you today, Erin, drawing on your extensive research on these questions and, and topics. So I'm really excited to to get started. So I think the first question I, I wanted to get into with you, uh, you've written a lot about how you think respectability politics plays a big role in why police violence against Latinx people doesn't get more attention from media and politicians. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about this. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. And before I go into the question, I should preface it with what people have said, well, the reasons people have stated why this issue doesn't receive the same amount of attention. So since the Ferguson protests in 2014, there's been journalists and political pundits who try to investigate why this issue doesn't receive the same amount of attention. And the reasons they cite tend to be pretty similar. So for one, they cite media bias, and that's inextricably linked to Latinx for representation in media organizations. So you have a media company that's majority white, that's going to limit the perspective of the staff. Others have argued the black-white binary, which they argue makes Latinx individuals invisible. And one that's pretty legitimate is the statistical limitation. So you have Roberto Rodriguez. He's an associate professor of Mexican-American studies at the University of Arizona. And his research, he's looked at how police departments report Latinx victims of police shootings. And he found out that many of them were classified as white or unknown. So most of the official data we have is actually an undercount. And, well, there's others who argue that immigration is just more of a present issue. And then you have a syndicate columnist, Esther Cepeda, who argue that Latinx and African-Americans just don't get along. And her, her example was largely cited in Chicago, which I think is actually quite limited. So my intervention is this, that I argue that while I think all those um, arguments have legitimacy, I think they do underlook um, respectability politics. And what do we know? Since the 1980s, there has been a desire by liberals and conservatives alike, Latinx and non-Latinx, to portray Latinx as upwardly mobile, hardworking, family-oriented, entrepreneurial, law-abiding, and inherently conservative. Now, most of these narratives are a rebuke to the negative portrayals of Latinx in media, film, as well as in um, political campaigns. Now, this is a, it's not a large group of people, but they do tend to have the largest microphones. So I think of the Latino Donor Collaborative, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting positive images of Latinx. A few years ago, they had an interview with Charlie Rose where they pretty much asserted all those narratives that I already just um, stated previously. And this, this narrative is also purported by non-Latinx individuals. So I think of journalist Michael Baroni in his 2000 book, The New Americans, where he compared Latinx to Italians and in terms of their pathway to assimilation. And he even condemned the Chicano movement as prohibiting assimilation for Mexican-Americans particularly. And his main motivation was to convince his conservative peers that Latinx aren't and won't be a burden on a society. So to make the Republican Party a little bit more appealing to Latinx voters. But like all respectability politics, um, classism is definitely embedded in it. So one thing the political right has done with the police brutality narrative issue is that they have portrayed it as one of pathology. So victims of police brutality are deemed as criminals and deemed that they had it coming to them. And with that narrative, it's pretty hard to incorporate Latinx into a narrative without um, challenging various um, respectability um, narratives. But in terms of also classism, we understand that while anybody can be a victim of police violence as well as police harassment, this is an issue that disproportionately affects the poor and working class, as those neighborhoods are um, policed the most. 
Yeah, I mean, I think this question of how criminality and victim blaming is so baked in often to how we talk about police violence that it actually um, incentivizes folks to distance themselves from recognizing these moments of police violence when they occur, right? And I think the points that you're making around, you know, a lot of what a scholar Arlene Davila has called Latino spin, right? This notion Uh of Latinos as kind of the new white ethnics, right? The new group that's going to assimilate um, and, and you know, retain certain aspects of a culture, right, that is kind of decorative, uh, for lack of a better word, but uh, that is going to not be a problem, that is um, hardworking, contributing, all of that kind of stuff, right? I think these are really important points as to, like, what exactly is going on with this not refusal necessarily, but as you're saying, an undercount, right? That there's a lot of kind mm-hmm. of factors that are that are playing in. And I think in particular, the ambiguities that you're pointing out also in terms of Latinos' racial makeup, right? Like are, mm-hmm. th- and, and how these questions come into play, right? Are they white? Are they black? Are they brown? Is race, is, it, is Latino a race or an ethnicity, right? How are we distinguishing these? All complicate, I think, our... Uh, ability to capture exactly what what is going on. Yeah, and I will add too that um, many of the individuals who purport this narrative, while I do understand where they're coming from, they largely represent the middle and upper middle class, and some of them come from middle and upper middle class backgrounds. So there definitely is a gap with understanding the issues that affect poor working class people. Right. So one of the things I've noticed that sometimes when police violence against Latinx people is spoken about, it can actually end up reinforcing anti-Blackness as opposed to challenging it or creating opportunities for solidarity. So, for instance, one of the things we saw during the first wave of Black Lives Matter protests following the police murder of Michael Brown and the uprising in Ferguson was a non-Black Latinx activist accused Black activists of ignoring police violence against Latinx people. This has come up again with the recent wave of Black Lives Matter uprisings after the killing of George Floyd. So we'll hear refrains like uh, Latinx lives matter, brown lives matter, with the implication being that Latinx people are left out of the movement for black lives and the kinds of police violence that they experience are somehow unique, right? And so I was was wondering, how do you make sense of this phenomenon? What do you think is going on there? That's a good question. Um, this is a pattern I've noticed whenever African-American trauma is in the headline. People looking at ask, what about Latinx? And some individuals feel that their issues are being undermined or deemed as insignificant. And I've even seen this extend to pop culture when it comes to like black films. That pretty much gets a lot of rewards and it draws questions like about Latinx on roles in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So I think these attitudes stem from a few areas. One is the perception that Latinx and African-Americans are two groups that are inherently in conflict with one another and the perception that one group's gain is another loss. So I think of the um, mayoral election in Chicago between Chewy Garcia and Rob Emanuel, right. which the African-American vote got divided. Most voted for Rob Emanuel, but there was an undertone or perception that if Garcia won, he would only cater to the Latinx community in Chicago and ignore the issues among African-Americans. Of course, Chewy Garcia actually was a respected activist um, in the city, but those so those seeds were pretty much um, sold between the two groups, and it didn't help Um, the relationship between two groups in the city. Um, Another area I would argue, too, is that Latinx understand that they had at times had a shared and overlapping history with African-Americans, and the plight of African-Americans are inextricably linked with um, Latinx. 
And we see, we see this when sometimes the two groups will collaborate. I think of San Francisco after the police killing of Alejandro Nieto, where mm-hmm. a group of activists started a hunger strike. And one of the activists did acknowledge the um, similarities between Latinx and African-Americans. In fact, I remember the parents of Alejandro Nieto attended the funeral of Mario Woods, an African-American man who was murdered in San Francisco. And both neighborhoods are actually pretty geographically separated. And we saw this in Cicero when there was gang violence among Latinx trying to protect their businesses during the George um, Floyd protests. And community activists acknowledged the um, similarities between the two groups as well. But on the other hand of this um, narrative, there is this contingent that tries to distance Latinx from African-Americans during protests against police brutality. Um, they, they often cast Latinx as passive. So in that one article I wrote recently, I mentioned Hector Tobar, who argued that Latinx had a rage deficit and cited his conversation with students at the California State University of Los Angeles. He promoted this respectability narrative that they resisted, but it just looked different. They just um, got good grades, um, tried to be the breadwinners of their family and that's they take care of their families mm-hmm. i'm a little concerned about the pattern because i think people should be outraged about unarmed lives and that's gunned down no matter whenever the issue is um dominated headlines right. but don't get it wrong there is there is a lot of protest that occurs but it just doesn't really receive a whole lot of um, attention mm-hmm. so aaron i think these points that you're bringing up about these questions of competence what you know i think is a familiar kind of trope when talking about either Black-Brown relations, Black and Latino relations, Black and African-American relations, um, this notion of competition uh, versus coalition, right? This is something I think we see a lot of discussion about. Um, It's been, I think, you know, framed as the kind of only frame for understanding, I think, kind of questions around Blackness and Latinidad, and I, I think to a tremendous amount of detrimental harm, right, for understanding the kind mm-hmm. of complexities of these relationships, of race, of how race operates and racial embodiment and categorization. And I appreciated you bringing up Alex Nieto. Um, for folks who don't know the case of Alex Nieto, Alex Nieto is essentially a, a, a killed by gentrification, right? Uh, he's in a gentrifying area of, of San Francisco. He's on his lunch break, and people kept calling the police and saying, he was a suspicious character um, and the police came and killed him, right? They, they shot him and, and there's a really fantastic um, piece uh, about this, about Alex Nieto being a, a victim of gentrification, right? And being killed by gentrification that, that I really recommend folks to look up and, and read. But, you know, Alex Nieto's case, I think, shows us exactly what you're talking about, right? The kinds of benefits on of, of thinking about the complexities of relationality and and spatial relations, right? And how we kind of think about these issues, right? The fact that African-Americans and other Black folks and uh, Latinx folks of all kinds of um, uh, ethnicities and races are often in really close proximity to one another, right? And so that creates a number of ways in which Latinx folks might not experience exactly the same kinds of policing, right, as as Black folk, um, non-Black Latinx folks, I should say, will experience the same kinds of policing, but that there are shared commonalities, right, in terms of what we see of over-policing, of the ways in which gender gentrification and policing collide and often make life incredibly deadly and difficult for both kind of Black folks and uh, and Latinx folks, right? And so I think this is really important. And I think 
a point for us to kind of always push back when we hear these narratives, right? Where it's a zero, it's often positioned as a zero sum game, right? If black folks are, as you noted, right, getting attention over something, then Latinx are losing out, right? And so I think that's such an urgent point that you're making that we have to always push back on, whether it's in the media or whether it's in terms of these questions of, of police violence and things like that. So one of the things I wanted to also talk to you about that, you know, I think we've seen a lot in this recent wave of uprisings is uh, uh, what you've called riot shaming, right? And uh, Latinx have been doing, Latinx folks have been doing a lot of that uh, recently. So, you know, you you hear Latinx people saying things like, oh, we don't destroy our neighborhoods like they do, right? This kind of adversarial uh, notion and relationship. There's also been cases reported in Chicago and New York City, as well as Los Angeles, of Latinx folks forming armed patrols to protect their neighborhoods from looting and even attacking Black folks who were seen as outsiders uh, and a threat to the community, right? Once again, I think obviously ignoring the fact that there are Black Latinx folks that live in these communities, right? Mm -hmm. So you've written a lot about what's wrong with these perspectives, uh, not just the fact that they reproduce anti-Black notions of respectability, but also that they ignore, as you're kind of starting to point to, a really long history of Latinx riots in the United States. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the history of Latinx riots and why do you think this history is so important for us to know in this moment? Yeah, so this is this is still something I think historians will study in the future and I kind of look forward to it. I have seen a few um, studies here and there. So... Latinx riots emerged in the mid-1960s, coinciding with the bulk of African-American riots, and they occurred well into the early 70s with regularity. And of course, there are definitely some outliers outside of that. And similar to African-American um, urban uprisings, most of them sparked because of police brutality. There definitely are a few exceptions. They usually cited the same issue as unemployment, housing condition, um, deteriorating police relations. Now, one of the reasons why I think these um, incidents are largely forgotten deals with the fact that they mostly occurred in the early 1970s, and that falls outside of our peripheral view of 1960s urban rebellions, which is understood largely as incidents that occurred in African-American communities roughly between 1964 and 1968. There also are some contemporary issues. Um, it's reasons why they didn't receive much attention. Uh, for one, some of them were not covered in the press very adequately. So you would have Puerto Rican urban uprisings, and because African-Americans like participated, the press usually would say, they use the ambiguous term like Puerto Rican and Negro neighborhood, but totally obscure is where the um, incident emerged from. Um, I think of the um, 1972 South End riots in Boston, Massachusetts, and I looked at the um, Boston Globe, the, the newspaper, when this incident occurred to see how it was covered. And it was never covered in the front page. I think it was covered like on the second and third page for a few days, and it just kind of went away as if it just never happened. Another incident, too, another reason why, because some of these occurred in cities like Newark, New Jersey, and Hartford, where a previous urban uprising among African Americans kind of still overshadows it, so it's not really remembered as well. I think I think the reason why it's important to understand these um, incidents because some of the underlying reasons that for why they happen haven't gone away. Granted, the dynamics have certainly changed, and history doesn't repeat itself. I 
I never would argue that the same large scale rioting you saw in the sixties could happen again. I think that was a unique moment in time. But you still we still have issues of police harassment, overcrowding, housing, poverty, unemployment and underemployment, alienated youth. And I think it would be disingenuous to argue that something could never blow over again. It might not be as large and it might be more multiracial in nature, but yeah, I think the likelihood of it happening again is still pretty high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, about, for instance, the Division Street riots, right, in Chicago, yes. which are uh, riots that occur in, in, on Division Street, which is a predominantly Puerto Rican area of Chicago, right? And the fact that outside of the Puerto Rican community, right, and really outside of the Puerto Rican community in Chicago, the fact that that is not seen as a major part of kind of what we identify as the long, hot summers of the 60s and 70s, right? It's seen mm-hmm. as kind of these complete unrelated uh, forms of riot or uprising when, in fact, they were uh, much more (laughs) diverse, I think, as you point out, right? There was participation by kind of different groups and were responding to many of the same kind of um, issues of structural uh, and systemic inequality. I just finished reading uh, Joanna Fernandez's excellent book about the Young Lords, and I think she gets into really great detail about precisely how much... um, a lot of these kind of radical movements of the 1960s were responding to these questions of over-policing and being under-resourced, right? And that's kind of what made this kind of potential for these really interesting coalitions, right, between groups like the Young Lords and the the Black Panthers or the Brown Berets, which is a Chicano kind of uh, power group, all of this. So I think, you know, these questions of of how do we kind of recuperate this history and, and what does it teach us is 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 really interesting in, in a moment like this uh, where we see uh, Latinos uh, saying things like, we don't riot, that's what they do, right? And, and <laughs> oh yeah, I can add something. So the whole thing that you know we don't riot. That's there was a pat. So there's a historical pattern. So before these incidents occurred, the dot the understanding among some um, journalists and government officials was uh, Latinx are passive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they, they, I mean, that was said among about Mexican Americans. I mean, one journalist said, "There's no way in the world anybody can travel to East Los Angeles and think a, a similar incident like Watts could ever happen there." I mean, we've seen this among Puerto Puerto Ricans where police officers just thought that they were like more respectful to the police. They respected law enforcement. But ironically, even when these incidents erupted, there was definitely there was still an attempt to dismiss them as isolated incidents, even when they were Mm -hmm. happy with um, regularity. And most famously, a MIT professor in uh, MIT said after a riot among um, whites and um, Latinx in Lawrence, Massachusetts, just said Hispanic rioting among among Hispanics is highly unusual. Conditions have to be severe when these incidents kind of happen. <laughs> and it was 1984 after like a series of urban uprisings occurred all throughout the late 60s, mid, mid to late 60s and 70s. Yeah, and I think that has to do with the ways in which Latinx and African Americans have been uh, racialized, right? And and in this country, right? So we we hear these kind of narratives that play on aggressivity on the one hand and passivity on the other, right? When it comes to Black folks mm-hmm. and Latinx folks, right? And this has been something that it has very long roots that lots of historians have kind of uh, tracked that has a lot to do with how like Latino immigrants were posed as 
docile and good laborers in comparison to um, black workers, right? Um, and mm-hmm. pose in this kind of middle ground of race and, and ambiguity, right, as, as you noted. So I think that's a really important way for us to remember that these kind of, even the ways that these these things are remembered are so deeply shaped by these histories of, of racialization and the ways in which affect, right, or bodily comportment as, as is part of that racialization process. So I have one last question for you because we're we're starting to run out of time. But um, oh, okay. <laughs> I know I, I feel like I could I could you know chop it up with you here all day. But uh, you know <laughs> uh, one of the moments where we see a lot of organizing against state and law enforcement violence in the Latinx community is actually around immigration and detention. But folks don't always see these struggles as as part of the movement for Black Lives or the fight to abolish the police or defund the police. So what do you think that we can gain from from seeing these struggles in the same frame? Uh, one thing we gain is, uh, I think it's probably obvious to anybody who knows this, um, the apparatus of policing is broad in nature. Uh, Latinx face it on multiple fronts. Um, think of like immigration, ICE agents, Border Patrol, of course, there's a long history of border violence among the U.S.-Mexican border, as well as just everyday policing, which affects citizens and non-citizens alike. Now, you're correct to point out that the absence of everyday policing among millions of Latinx encounter on a daily basis kind of gets um, glossed over us. But by connecting the two, we'll acknowledge that Blackness is an essential part of Latinx identity and that the marginalization African-Americans face is linked to Latinx. And I've, I've argued this before, that most anti-Black policies affect Latinx um, people in some form or fashion, even if it's not equally severe. So think police police policy or even like mass incarceration. I mean, there's more, I mean, there's more, even though African-Americans disproportionately were affected by mass incarceration, there are more Latinx, Asian-Americans and white Americans in jail than there were in the 1970s. And if we're going to like coalition, I mean, I think coalitions come out of this, but I'm a believer that they have to occur organically and they cannot be forced um, upon people. And I, I mostly speak on that from personal experience growing up in a predominantly Puerto Rican community in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I think, you know, your points around anti-Blackness, these these kind of policies as, you know, obviously disproportionately impacting Black folks, but also impacting a wide range of folks, right? And so I, I think about the kinds of insights of, of Black feminists, uh, scholars and activists, right? The, the number one thing they say is when we fight for Black life, everyone, everyone's lives are improved, right? Because mm-hmm. these policies... Yeah, they might explicitly target black folks, but they impact everyone, right? Obviously not in the same ways, but they create the door to make everyone's lives worse, right? And so this, mm-hmm. you know, I think this is one of the things that is really powerful um, in terms of the potential of this moment is to really think about, you know, not necessarily like when you say black lives, why aren't you saying Latino lives? But how do we get behind this notion of fighting for black life? Because that makes everyone's lives better, right? That is a more just and and equal world, right? The kind of world that, that we should be fighting for. So I think we're out of time. We're going to leave it there. But Aaron, thank you so much. This has been really, really wonderful to hear a little bit more uh, about your work and uh, definitely uh, encourage folks to check you out. I know you're also working on a project about um, the Black uh, Manosphere, right? Uh, so about oh, the men's rights movement, <laughs> uh, So which is super interesting and Ugh. definitely uh, encourage. Yeah, it gives <laughs> encourage- me a headache. I, I bet. <laughs> but definitely encourage folks to check out uh, your work on, on Latinx policing and riots, but also your your incredible work on uh, on the black men's rights movement and, and the dangers of that space for uh, for black women and women of color. So thank you so much for your work. OK, I appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. 
Hi all, this is Ashley Nava Monteros, the Communications Associate at Latino Studies. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Make sure to check out the Latino Studies Instagram page. Follow us at Latino Studies UT to keep the conversation going.